Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Simon Hick here, standing in for the undisputed king of Harry Broadcasters. That's Omar McDevitt, who's currently on his honeymoon. I'm joined by Kieran Gallans Murphy. Hello there, hello there. And Simon. Ken Early House Early. Hi, fellas. How are you? Hi, uh, Simon. How are you? <laughs> That's an unfair character, right? Well, no, we'll let it slide, Ken. We'll let it slide. Owen, I assume, is on his dream holiday, a whistle stop tour of the 20 best college football stadiums in America. <laughs> Uh, it's not that, is it? I believe he's touring South Africa. I mean, that's what he's telling us. He I mean, if he was touring the 20 the highest capacity campus stadia in American sports, yeah. would he tell us that? Um, he, he does know the super rugby season hasn't started, right? <laughs> he could, at this moment, literally be in a shark cage. <laughs> you know, peeking out through the bars. What, what a state of mind is like. Uh, well, yeah. I, I would say quite worried, but... A shark would never have been presented with, say, the unique set of challenges that Owen's thick hide would present. I mean, maybe a shark would just swim by his, and say, it's not wor- yeah, it's just not worth the bother. Those great whites are starting to get into the cages, actually. Yeah, I've seen a lot of videos recently where they literally go straight through the cages. Uh, there was one where it went through the side and back out through the top, through the hatch, mm. as everybody on the boat was saying, oh, my God, oh, my God. But the uh, diver had somehow managed to hide at the bottom of the cage, and the shark didn't sort of notice. I found myself in the middle of a conversation with my Auntie Mary and my two parents over Christmas about a shark cage attack. Yeah. And it was just one of the weirder situations in my life. Suffice to say, anyway, they were shocked by the footage and shocked also by how our friend managed to survive. Yeah, yeah. Um, Uh, I I love the way the photographer is shocked, assumes that person in that cage is dying, but keeps a steady hand on the camera. Well, uh, Really he, good focus, aperture. You could, well, you couldn't, I mean, what can you do? You could you plunge in mm. and try to, you know, wrestle, try, try to contribute that way, or you could keep an account because Best everyone... Just memorialise the man's life. Memorialise and also to document the incident because um, 
people are going to know want to know what went down here, mm. and uh, that video is going to be important. Take the learnings and uh, move on. Murph, I'm going to let the listeners in on one of the secrets of broadcasting. I'm going to lift the lid on how this whole crazy business no, works. Not, so that's not, don't lift it too far, please. So the, the main anchor is actually in charge of who their stand-in will be during holiday breaks or yeah. sickness. Yeah. So they can either offer someone, say, who's really good, keeps the show ticking along nicely, keeps the figures up, or they could offer someone who's vastly imper- inferior, no real threat to their position, mm. and has listeners yearning for their return. So that's why I'm sitting here and you're sitting there. Is that is that what we're saying? Or has the hot breath of Mark Horgan over previous months <laughs> just proved too much for McDevitt to, to handle? I like where this is going, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Mark. Okay, my favourite bit of sporting drama over the weekend was Pep Guardiola's post-match interview with the BBC. Here's Damien Johnson doing his best to get along with the Man City manager. You want it? You want it the hard way? Yeah. That's true. What was your verdicts on the game and the performance? Because you showed real spirit after going down to ten men. Yeah, that's true. We won against uh, a lot of uh, circumstances in a tough game, so we're happy for that. The sending off, what was your view of uh, the red card for Fernandinho? You are the journalist, not me. You're the manager, I'm sure the fans will like to know. As to the referee, not me. You don't seem that happy that you've won. More than you believe. You aren't showing it. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. Ken, he's what I'd call aggressively passive-aggressive there. Yeah, it's definitely on the aggressive side of passive-aggressive. Um, he... <laughs> I, I don't really know why he was so uh, annoyed. I mean, I don't know whether... The, the one with Sky was even more kind of nakedly hostile. And then the interview with Damon Johnson of the BBC. Um, just not a... Not a happy dude. I mean, choking with anger there, as he said that he was happy. No yeah. matter what Damien Johnson, no matter what angle he was coming from, Pep was remaining angry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't really uh, Damien Johnson's fault, uh, I would have thought. Um, I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's kind of unfortunate, actually, for Guardiola to be... To be the, these types of things have an importance that he maybe doesn't grasp in English football culture. You know, this is a kind of moment that people will remember and kind of look back on, um, more so than any of the clever substitutions he makes or the great game plans that he comes up with. People will remember him choking with anger in an interview because they will have seen that and it kind of lodges in their brain. Uh, I mean, I'll compare it to, you know, think of Rafael Benitez a few years ago. I mean, what do people remember? Facts. Facts. You know, I mean, it's unfair uh, it, it was one of the less significant things that he did that season, but one of the more memorable things in the sort of wider consciousness. So these are the sorts of moments that I think he needs to try to avoid. Uh, yeah, like a, a manager's highlights reel, you know, necessarily is not anything to do with on the field. I mean, if you, you know, golden Pep Guardiola managerial moments on YouTube in five years' time, you know mm. what I mean? It, you know, like it, that's not how the culture, how we... Uh, take in information on the internet now yeah. it's not you know here's an interview with Pep Guardiola you know where he tells us about his five greatest ever substitutions you well, do actually remember this stupid stuff I mean there's, there's also the fact that you know we, we were speaking about this in the um, football show earlier on today but even since then um, Dermot Corrigan uh, who, who we have got on the show a good few times uh, has a piece on ESPN where he translates some comments from Lou Martin Lou Martin is the kind of top interviewer in the Spanish uh, football media. 
you'd see him in mixed zones kind of the players are always straight over to to him you know what i'm saying is you well connected uh, guy when he speaks about these things he's talking about guardiola uh, on cadena ser uh, and i'm sure that he's not speaking off the top of his head when he says <laughs> he says at the moment his challenge is Manchester City who are a team like Villarreal in La Liga for example a team which is not one of the top sides I'm not giving my opinion I'm telling you what Guardiola thinks they are like a second tier team in the Premier League it's 30 years since Man City have won at Liverpool for example uh, he sees it as a personal challenge to compete against the biggest teams now <laughs> <laughs> have they won the league twice in the last four years they, I mean, this is amazing. You know, this is, if if Guardiola actually thinks that, uh, and Martinez saying that he did, that's he's delusional. Manchester City are not comparable to Villarreal. Villarreal have never won a trophy apart from, unless you want to count the Intertoto Cup. Uh, you know, Manchester City have won the title four times. Um, they've won the FA Cup five times. They've won a European trophy. This is not just a, you know, an insane. And they're they're also, you know one of the richest clubs in the world. That's the most pertinent point here. You know, they've got Raheem Sterling, who costs 50 million. They've got Kevin De Bruyne, who costs 50 million. They've got John Stones, who costs 50 million. I don't know how many players VRL have who cost 50 million pounds. So he's having a pop at the fans. He's having a pop at the club. He's having a pop at English football. And he's having a pop at English media. Mm. It's a little bit too, too many... Um, things to be sort of taken on. I mean, it, I think it's interesting that he... He needs to win the league. This this point that Lou Martin is saying may actually... I mean, for instance, with the book that we've spoken about a couple of times, uh, Marty Pernau, the more recent one about Guardiola, uh, an argument is actually made in that book that the very blank slateness of Manchester City is that was actually the thing that Pep liked about the offer. Because you've obviously got a big transfer budget, you know, whether he had joined Manchester United or any of the other clubs that might have wanted to hire him. But he also might have had, as he had at Bayern, people who'd been there a long time saying, this is a big club and we've got a certain way of doing things. Um, for instance, at Bayern, he, he had a big fight with the doctor, the doctor who'd been there since the 1960s, and said, well, of course, this is the way we do things. This is Bayern, you know? We've done things like this a long time before you got here and we'll still be doing them like that a long time after you've gone on to do whatever it is that you're going to do. Now, I'm not saying that was the exact tone of their exchange, but it was a problem for Guardiola, who ended up sacking the doctor or, or you know, having a big fight with him, which resulted in the doctor leaving. So he thought that at Man City, this wouldn't be the case. I'd come in and it's kind of a new club, you know, and the, and people will be open to a new way of doing things. So it could be that Martin is, is, is sort of taking that and putting forward a slightly different perspective on that. But the idea that somehow City are not a top, side or that there's less you know that 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 it's more difficult for Guardiola because City are only a little club like Villarreal it's completely crazy you know it's so crazy that I, I hesitate to believe it's what Guardiola actually believes you know he can't he can't be that far gone this is a big team with all the tools all the same tools that he had you know at any of the big clubs that he's managed before in terms of being able to get players maybe not in terms of the quality of players they have certainly not in terms of the quality of players they've already got but in terms of their potential, in terms of the expectations we should have for them, um, to compare them with Villarreal is, is insane. Well, listen to the Pep interviews over the weekend. Really reminded me a lot of this. You don't get any rain up here, one. What way would that be? I seen you was from Dallas. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from? Friendo. 
<laughs> I didn't mean nothing by it. it. Didn't mean nothing. Just passing the time. If you don't want to accept that, I don't know what else I can do for you. Will it be something else? I don't know. Will there? Rendo. <laughs> Literally one of the scariest uh, scenes in any movie that I've ever watched. About the same level of respect uh, going on there. We know with respect, you only get what you give. So, Yeah, I really want to test myself for this first going hot seat, obviously. So we'll be talking rugby and sailing on the show today. <laughs> Nicely played. Nicely played, Simon. Get, get, get out of your comfort zone. That's, my, that's always been my advice to you. Windsurfing and stand-up paddleboarding on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> the paddleboarding, I'm particularly looking forward to. Uh, later on, we're going to speak to Gregor McGook in the studio, a young Irish sailor who's entered the 2018 Golden Globe Round the World Yacht Race, which is a recreation of the bizarre and fascinating 1968 version of the same race. But we've had a couple of weeks of hot, hot interpro rugby action. Dennis Hickey is on the line and Jerry Thornley joins us in studio. Jerry, how are you? Not too bad. Happy New Year. Same to you. Uh, we want to talk, first of all, about Munster and just after this flurry of interpros over the Christmas period, they're probably the only province to come out with much credit from the games. Yeah, I think they accumulated nine points in the two matches. Leinster and Ulster, four each, and Connacht just the one. So they were certainly had the, the biggest net gain, that's for sure. I think the fixtures fell nicely for them, Simon. I think if you were to handpick them what you wanted over that Christmas period, given the general ruling that you know 25 odd thereabouts frontliners were going to be rested for one of the two games then you probably would have picked Leinster at home on Stephen's Day with them sending down a largely second-string team, with one or two exceptions, followed by an away game against Connacht, whom are uh, suffering 22 injuries at, as things stand. So I think if you are to handpick your fixtures over the Christmas period, they would have been the ones. All that being said and done, it didn't stop Leinster winning in Thoman Park in the corresponding fixture 12 months previously. And uh, I thought Leinster's defensive effort, particularly in the first half, was just enormous. But for Munster to come through the way they did with a bonus point win and then back that up with a very kind of old school, sleeves rolled rolled up, get down and dirty in a really wet and damp sports ground and by repelling one mall and going down the pitch and scoring off their old mall was very old school. I think it would have been the kind of win that would have given the squad and the organisation every bit as much satisfaction as the bonus point win over Leinster, which might sound bizarre, but I think that it would have done. So they had a lot of net gains over it. I think if there was one pivotal moment in the entire Christmas period, it was that period coming up to half-time when they spent two, two minutes, 40 seconds recycling the ball through 23 phases. Leinster didn't miss a tackle, um, including one off the ball by Zane Kirshner, which brought Darren sweeping out of the game and out of the game for a few weeks and culminated in Blaindale's skip pass for Roland O'Mahony score in the corner. That was the turning point of the, of, the, of the festive period. And from there, they went on and got their bonus point win. And it certainly sent the vast majority of the 27,000 record crowd home um, very happy. I don't know about your feelings about this, lads, but it's slightly unsatisfactory that nobody's going, that you're not getting two sides going at it full tilt with locked and fully loaded like would have been the case. Yet, you've got four full houses and in the exception of just the sports ground, all the home fans going home quite content and they're not too bothered. I didn't think Munster fans were too bothered about the fact that Leinster didn't turn up with all their front-line players and they emerged with a bonus point win. Yeah, Malachy Clerkin was writing about it in the Irish Times that the, the Irish rugby fan is being taken for a fool. Uh, that... He he didn't say that, but I mean that was the point of his article. That this idea that you play uh, second string teams and second string teams, and then people aren't even fully aware of 
how second string the teams are actually going to be that you know that there it's a breakdown in, in trust between the organizations and their fans that you're basically saying these are huge fixtures and you know they're marketed in one way i.e come see Ireland's heroes you know come see the te- the the men that beat the All Blacks or whatever uh, and then you show up and Leinster are playing a second string team yeah <clears throat> um, I've got mixed feelings about it I do think that we want Ireland to put their best foot forward come to Six Nations and it's imperative therefore that at the end of the November month they get a week's respite I think that really stood to the provinces going into Europe I think another week respite now you might have argued it could have happened in the first week this upcoming week now in the Pro 12 but Munster certainly had to rest up with three consecutive Champions Cup games our frontline players cannot be expected to play the likes of six or seven or eight games in a row and you know they'll benefit from a week off again at the end of January and go into the Six Nations relatively fresh Ireland's game management is always hailed as one of the primary reasons they remain contenders in Six Nations over a period of the last four years when France have never been contenders and finished in the bottom half each year because they don't manage their players. So I do think you've got to bear that in mind. We can't have it every way and they've got to be rested up occasionally. The proof will be in the pudding in the years to come. You know, the fans, this is not the first time this has happened and they're still buying tickets and they're still filling out the grounds and like I said, I didn't see too many disappointed Munster supporters going away from the game. I do think that the Leinster-Ulster game was a very anticlimactic affair and the weather took its toll and what happened in Connacht. But, um, it, so it's slightly unsatisfying, but I think, the, I think the fans now pretty much know what they're getting and what they're paying for. Dennis Hickey, does it bother you so much when there's not full-strength teams playing in these Interpros? Well, it, it does to a point. I think, um, I think really the issue lies with how the season is structured. I don't, don't blame either of the organisations because they're playing within the constraints of player management. I, I just think that the... Um, that the IRFU uh, and um, Pro 12 Rugby can organise the fixtures better. I think really that's it. I, I, I think at the start of the year when the f- fixtures are announced, when the marketing starts, um, when the planning starts, I think everyone in, in, in good faith is trying to promote the game. What on paper looks like to be a mouthwatering clash and local diaries. And then by the time the game comes around, um, that may or may not be the case. And, and I agree to Jerry, with Jerry to a certain point. I think supporters in general have an understanding that this could now be the case but I think it could be just resolved by restructuring how the season is organised and you just shouldn't maybe have the, 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 those you know, interpros as they're still um, referred to affectionately maybe um, being back to back just thinking you can break the, the games up you could still have good games over the holiday period but um, you could have a you know I think I certainly I think the teams deserve um, I think the fans and the teams actually as well. I think, I think everyone would welcome one big um, derby, uh, whoever that is against. At least one of the fixtures should be set up. I think to that you have two full strength sides. And I think everyone would like to see that. Probably and players too. I think the fact of the matter is though that the way rugby works these days, a third year squad are probably injured at any one time. So things are getting rotated anyway, uh, and then yeah. you get to see a player like Rory O'Loughlin get a run of games, score an amazing try. I mean, there's a different vibe to it. It may not be the full-strength side, but it can be as exciting. Yeah, like I think what constitutes a full-strength side at any at any um, given time is certainly up for debate. Exactly. I mean, a bit of a moving target. But I do think, you know, I think there is a, a thing accepted, and I don't think it's it's denigrating the efforts of any of the team, for example. And if you look at the Leinster, Leinster-Munster game, I think it's fair to say that um, the team that played for Leinster was over and above 
the mix of players that you would expect in the given churn of between injuries and selection. And I think it would be great to see guys like O'Loughlin and um, Rory O'Loughlin and other players from a Leinster perspective, let's say, playing along, you know, being one of maybe four players or five young players in a team of, you know, three quarters even or even more of, of what would be at that time the, the first team, because that would be benefit for, be great for those young players, but it also then kind of evens things out. Listen, it's a very, very difficult balancing act, but I think just the way the season is structured at the moment, I don't think the coaching setups, I don't think the organizations really have any choice but to do what they're doing. And um, I, I just don't know why, for example, you couldn't have Leinster have been playing Munster last week or when they played, but then been playing, even switching the the, the, the Zebrae fixture and the Leinster are playing this weekend to, to last weekend and so forth. And, and all of a sudden you've got a chance to break things up a bit. I just think it's, um, if it could be done, I think they should look at it to see if they can do it. On that theme of watching younger players come through, Dennis, it really struck me in that Leinster game that if you watch O'Loughlin and Ringrose, obviously a little bit more established now, and Ross Burnett out half, and think back to the November internationals, the players that come through, the younger players that come through now, they're almost ready by the time they start getting a couple of games. They're so confident. I mean, it's, it's kind of a different era. I don't know if it's a difference. It's because of the academies, obviously, but... They're ready from the off. Well, they're certainly ready, I think, for Pro 12 rugby, yeah. Like, I think, um, I think, for example, a lot of those young lads would have been, um, it would have been a baptism of fire, for example, from the left perspective, for a lot of those guys to be playing side by side against a full strength Munster side in Thelman Park and a fixture of that magnitude. I think that's a step up from a, from a, from all the other Pro 12 games. Um, uh, for for a young player going to play in a way match like that, but I think by uh, you know I think overall I think you're right I think they are able to to play because that's the level that they coach that's the level they play to that's the level they're trained to every day it's not like 15 years ago whereby a young guy might be brought into a club game to to be drafted into for a squad for a week's training to play the weekend um, you know they're in the squad every day they're playing with the players every day they're very familiar with the the level of fitness and they're you know playing with and training with season international pro so I think it's understandable that they're able to step in um, to, to Pro 12 rugby or most Pro 12 rugby fixtures fairly seamlessly um, I think when you put you know, 12 of them on the same pitch at the same time it's going to be a bit of a struggle and as I said I think they will have gained a huge amount from uh, that match in, in, in Thelma Park because it's it's um, a fantastic place to play a rite of passage I think for, for players it's a rite of passage certainly for Leicester players to go down to Thelma Park and experience that especially in a full house and I think they should consider themselves very lucky to have played in a game like that um, so it will absolutely stand to them and um, notwithstanding the result you know there's a lot to be taken out of the game apart from the from the points for a win or a draw or a bonus point loss so um, they certainly would have taken a lot from that and that will certainly stand to them but um Sure, from a coaching perspective, they wish they'd, uh, they wish they'd taken all the points that they could have taken. Yeah, it was the one gripe, I think, for Leinster after the game and for Leo Cullen. Uh, Jerry, Rory O'Loughlin was voted man of the match. Uh, my vote would have been for Devin Toner. I, was, I don't know why I was watching him quite closely during the game. He had the usual, you know, one-handed line-out take, scrummaging, mauling, that extra bit of cynicism that's come into his game around the breakdown or whatever it may be. He put in what I thought was the best <clears throat> pass of the game of any back or forward that led to the Sean O'Brien break that ultimately wasn't a try. Uh, he made a beautiful tackle on Charles Piatow, uh, who'd already beaten a couple of men. He's just such an all-round player these days. Have you ever seen a player who's improved so much from his, say, mid-20s to what he is now, I think, 30 years of age? 
you asked me this just before we came on air and I went through, I might think of one later today, but at the moment I certainly can't think of one, allowing for the fact that Irish players often are later developers. Matt Williams used to always contend that, that the Irish Caucasian rugby player is generally a later developed than, than many other nations around the world, New Zealanders, Polynesians, so forth, Welsh, whatever, for whatever reason. Um, but that being said, um, you never would have figured that Devon Toner would have become such the player he's become in, in latter years, such a mainstay of both the Leinster and the Irish team such ridiculously consistent all-round levels of performance, as well as being an invaluable primary ball winner. I mean, his line-out stats are just remarkable. Um, and he's very good on the opposition throw as well, of course. And he's very good from restarts. I remember a couple of years back, Ireland beat Italy in a game in Rome, and one of the local Italian journalists came up to me and said, you know Devon Tone is probably your most important player. And I went, really? Um, and I thought about it afterwards. And we do take an awful lot of what he does for granted, but now you're right. He's added in so many other skills to his name, Recall, if you will, the time four or five years ago when Devon Toner took the ball into contact and a lot of people would just cover their eyes because he looked too angular, he was going in too upright and they wouldn't recycle it. That's another aspect of his game that's improved immeasurably. I'm, I'm sure playing alongside Paul O'Connell in latter years and then Paul O'Connell moving into retirement was a big factor. It often happens that way. You know, you feel an extra sense of responsibility. He is 30 now. I believe also that Brad, Thorne, Brad Thorne's time at Leinster was a big factor. Brad would say to Deb, Devin, come on, look at, look at what you've got, all the talent you have. You could be doing so much more with your game. And he saw Thorne being the first out in the training pitch and the last off the training pitch and took in an awful lot of... So this shows you the value and having really high quality overseas players in the system in the Irish provinces. And the, the ripple effects can be felt for years afterwards. Certainly that's what they said about John Langford and Jim Williams and Munster and many others. Um... So yeah, all in all, it's great to see he's now become an absolutely like one of the first names of the team sheet for both Leo Cullen and Joe Schmidt. And being the late developer he is, where he takes care of himself, you'd hope he's got a really good few years to come. And although there's a phalanx of second rows in contention, he has to be one of those now to be considered for the Lions as well. Tess, what do you reckon? Did, did you rate him when he first came through? Well, I don't think anyone probably would have rated him when he first came through as an 18 or 19-year-old when I first saw him because he was, you know... 18 or 19 and just kind of he was obviously had a huge potential but lots of guys come in with huge potential and, and, and in Ireland in a country like Ireland just shows you that um, you know if, if the player is the right mindset and then the structure around him to develop him you can you can turn a player who seemingly has some physical attributes that would sh- that are surely required in Irish rugby you don't have too many guys who are 6 foot 10 and have a good hand-eye coordination and turn them into an international player it's quite a journey to go on for everyone to get the player and not obviously first and foremost for the player himself, but for everyone else who's involved in developing that player, um, uh, to 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 turn a guy like Devon from the as I said the the kind of the, the teenager he was into into the international player he is now in, in what I still think is quite a relatively short period of time. You know, it kind of, you know he's turned into a, a top. Well, world class second row in eight years, which is um, you know, which is I think is uh, quite an achievement. And and you know, people obviously talk a lot about um, Jamie Heaslip, and I was talking to someone about this actually at the weekend, a former player, we're having this very conversation about Devon Tone watching the match, and. Um, just you know, people talk about Jamie Heaslip never being injured, but Devon Toner is rarely injured, uh, if almost never injured. He's incredibly durable now. The joke we're making is he probably injures more of his own players, I think, than the opposition because he's so uh, gangly and uh, armed. You see him, you see him uh, he's such a big, uh, he's such a big unit. Um, but he's you know, jokes aside, he's turned into, I think, you know, a, a really good athlete, and um, most importantly, he's stepped up to the leadership. That's what you want players like that who reach a certain stage in their career. 
they watch as Jerry say uh, 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 you know that they they watch and learn from the from the from the seasoned players who play alongside them and then they then they step into the step into the uh, the boots and become that player and that's exactly the journey that Leinster and Ireland would have wanted to go on I think second row is is the one position for our, for Leinster that you know if I'm looking at that team and how they're performing this year and it's no disrespect to a guy like Hayden Triggs and, and the other the younger guys coming through but I think Leinster are one big second row short of being uh, uh, you know almost a complete unit or certainly would be if they could get another Brad Thorne I'm not sure I'm saying with the current policy about bringing foreign players in but it's still the position I think that there's a, there's a gap if they could get a, uh, you know a big international second row and you know the, the loss of Kane Douglas or the fact that didn't work out makes it it's all the more frustrating as a spectator to see him playing regularly for Australia and delivering at the Super Rugby the fact that that, that didn't work out but that's that's the position I think if Lancer could get that particular position given where Devon Toner is um, that would put them right up there to be uh, sure to be able to compete in, in, in Europe. Just to take it back to Munster, they're playing that reschedule game against Racing Metro this weekend. Racing Metro having a terrible time of it. Mm. Uh, Munster having a great time of it. How do you see it shaping up? There's a, there's a few variables in there that we don't know yet that are going to affect the, how this game goes. We'll know a lot more at lunchtime on Friday, won't we, Simon, when Racing announced their team. It's always the giveaway with the French side that are out of contention in Europe. Um, we saw it with Northampton when they came to Aviva, but French times are more notorious for it, taking a very dilettante attitude after they're out of contention. If the name D Carter is next to the number 10 uh, in the Racing team sheet, that would seem to be a signal of intent. They are at home. That's the one thing I would say. There's a difference, even if they pick a lot of second-choice players or perceived as second-choice players, at home, a French side is still a completely different kettle of fish. Than and they're the coached French. by Ron O'Gar. And they're coached by Ron O'Gar. Whereas I think when they come to Toman Park in the last round, they can be more easily disabused of any notion of being in the game in the first 20 minutes. I've been at many games in France when they supposedly are feeling a second-choice team out of contention. Cast, I remember one year against Leinster and so forth. Um, Montepan even coming to Munster for that matter and others um, if they get an early in into the match if they get an early scrum in front of their own fans they get an initiative and get a penalty from that if they get an early score then it's game on and I think this could still be a very very tricky fixture for Munster and you, you know, they definitely let one get away in Welford Road they could be in real charge of their own destiny here and with Glasgow on a roll and momentum and them playing Glasgow away in the penultimate round of fixtures before they host Racing it almost looks like they might have to win this certainly if they nurture any hopes of getting a home quarter final which is not only lucrative but decidedly advantageous you think they might have to win this game but it, it could be quite tricky Dennis, we haven't spoken to you since uh, Munster's turnaround in form since the death of Anthony Foley really do you see it as a team with a cause, or is it a more technical thing that's caused this surge in form? That's probably a little bit of both. I think I think a team with a cause on its own doesn't doesn't make the sort of improvements that um, that I think you see from Munster. I think um, I think certainly the cause galvanised them in a way that these causes, these type of of, of losses and, and and grief can grow can 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 bring humans together especially teams that are already that are, that are looking for uh, always looking for something to give them that extra bit of inspiration and I think um, uh, that's certainly part of it but I think you know they've they've um, you know their their game 
which had been developing uh, since the start of the year, since the summer, and you know, continuing on from even from last year, and just the players that extra year ahead, a year, extra bit older, and some younger guys who are younger last year, being more experienced this year, and then a combination of the of the shakeup that they had and and the mo- the direction they're moving in. So I think it's not just the cause. I think it's the fact that they are they have a lot of guys who are playing really well. They've I think uh, structured their you know their team. I think is just that that but more settled this year than it's been in the past i think they're playing very good rugby i think they they've seemed to have sorted sorted out the 10 position i think bound all there i think he's played um you know i think he's played uh, he's played as, as well as they need him to play in the big games which is really steady them and uh, i think this sort of the center combination with Saeli now coming back as well into the mix i think keith earls having a great season uh which has really helped and he's been a real kind of really stepped up in leadership, particularly actually in these last games. And I think, um, you know, their forwards as well, guys who had been, I think, struggling to step up to that other level, especially some of their front row players have been fantastic this year. And um, and obviously guys like CJ Stander, uh, who with Peter Armandi coming back now beside him, um, being involved in the Irish squad and how that's, I think, transformed him, taking, taking him to another level. I just think it's, I think it's a combination of, of a lot of factors, I think the cause is is, um, is is important, but I actually just think they're they're playing very well this year. They're very well drilled, they're very well organised, and they've got on a bit of a run, which they just I think were due as well, you know, because they've been working very very hard. Sometimes you just need to build a little, get a little bit of momentum, and you can and all these things that were nearly working and nearly clicking start coming into place, and you realise why well, you did all the hard work in the first place. Yeah, playing really exciting stuff as well. Listen, thanks very much, Dennis Hickey, yeah. Jerry Tony. Cheers, thank you. Sorry, I've lost it. The first minister's name. Kieran Murphy, our second captain, and John Henderson, former Kenny, and Wicker Herder. Thank you both indeed for that. Uh, that's our lot for today. Just one headline, the British Prime Minister Theresa May is to meet the Taoiseach and the Kenny in London tomorrow. This morning she's at Stormont meeting Martin McGuinness and uh, also Theresa. Sorry, I've lost it. First Minister's name. Arlene Foster. Thank you for that. As a giant man yourself, Murphy, you're always rooting for lanky lads like Devin Toner to do well. Of course. I mean, I mean, he's the lankiest of us all. I mean, have we, has there ever been a taller Irish person than Devin Toner? No, I a for successful one. one, I don't think. I for well, one, giant yeah. haystacks. Well, was he was he giant in height as well as girth? There was definitely some giant Irish guy back in the day. Um. Finn McCool, like nah, there was some some giant. Uh, uh, there, there was, was that boxer Dan Donnelly, but I think he just had really long arms, as opposed <laughs> to being an extremely. He had the he had the arms of a Devon Toner, but was in fact more sort of Ronan O'Gara height. I think. Yeah, right. Uh, Pat, Patrick Cotter O'Brien, uh, tallest person recorded at the time, and the first in medical history to stand at a verified height of eight feet. Uh, that's eight foot one inches, Patrick uh, Cotter so O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from Kinsale, uh, County Cork. Uh, how would you? How do you think he made his living? Circus. Yes. Excellent. Uh, he adopted his name was Patrick Cotter, but he adopted O'Brien as his stage name in the sideshow circus. So. I mean, uh, well, is there any detail on the act, or was it just here's a really tall man? I mean, uh, you think you've seen tall, but well, this guy, he's a whole nother level. Of t- I mean, is he jumping through hoops or? Uh, I don't know. Is, is he this, clown? This is the turn of the. Turn the shoes of the would probably fit him at least. Only seventeen people in medical history have stood at a verified height of eight. 
uh, feet. You can see his giant boots on display at the Kinsale Museum. The Kinsale Museum? Yeah. If a, anyone has been gr- to the Kinsale Museum and has photographs the of the giant boots, we'd be delighted to retweet them. Now, we mentioned the Golden Globe Round the World Yacht Race at the start of the show, which, Ken, is the closest you can get to hopping in a time machine and going back to 1968 when the race was run for the first time. Yeah, um saw recently that Gregor was uh, was interested in uh, was, was is intending to participate in this race. So the race is actually in 2018, so it's a 50-year anniversary of the first race, which was 1968. The Sunday Times sponsored a competition to see who could sail around the world non-stop, single-handed, uh, which, okay, it drew, I think, nine entrants of whom most didn't even get out of the Atlantic. The idea is to start... Some of them barely got out of the harbour. Literally, yeah. their boats were falling apart. It was like wacky races. It's, I mean, it's a, it's, an, it's a crazy thing to do, to try to sail around the world. And this is, you know, with the sort of 1968 technology, okay, the the the, the new race is, is basically tries to conform closely to the technological conditions under which the original race was undertaken. So, tricky enough... You know, you don't have GPS and things like this. You know, there's there are there are sort of things which you might take for granted, which are not going to be available to these sailors. But in 1968, when they started this, I mean, it's like, okay. How long does it take to sail around the world? The winner managed to do it. Uh, Robin Knox Johnson was his name. Managed to do it in 312 days. So starting off um, the south coast of England, work your way down around uh, Africa and kind of go around the world, then come back up through the South Atlantic. He managed to do it. He was a you know a steady, you know one of these steady sort of Englishmen, um, slow and steady. And he won the race because he finished the race. He was the only one. Various others, you know, they couldn't get out of the, you know, the, the boats that had only gone a hundred, a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand miles, and they're giving up. There were two particular stories in this race which are, are really incredible. I mean, the more you read about, it, the more kind of fascinating it becomes. Um, one of them is uh, Bernard Montessier, who obviously a French uh, sailor, who decided at a point in which he was in the lead to say, you know what, I don't really care about any of this stuff. Why am I even participating in this silly race? You know, he managed to get all the way from the south coast of England, all the way around through the Pacific and around Cape Horn, the southern tip of South America, when he decided... Actually, you know what? This is just a rat race. I don't care about this stuff. He was spending a lot of time in his boat sitting in the lotus position because <laughs> he'd become sort of depressed sailing, sailing through the Pacific by himself. I mean, it's incredibly lonely and sort of, why am I, what's going on? He came to the conclusion that he didn't want to participate in this nonsense anymore and continued sailing all the way around the world again to Tahiti, where he eventually stopped and said, I've had about enough of that nonsense. But he, refi- he, he basically just pulled out of the race, even though he didn't have to. The other guy, Donald Crowhurst. Donald Crowhurst um, was a kind of fairly inexperienced sailor who eventually got, you know, he decided, oh, I'll enter this race. It was kind of a, a big money prize, lots of publicity attached. He got into the race, he, he, he was kind of rushing to get ready for it and eventually got into it. His boat wasn't really ready. He was having a lot of problems on his way down into the South Atlantic, where he eventually decided, okay, I've got no chance of finishing this race. I can't possibly get around the world in this, in this boat. What am I going to do? I mean, what you do is you pull out of the race, you go home. What he decided to do is, what if I sailed around a little bit here in the South Atlantic for a few months, gave fictional updates over the radio of where 
of my position and my progress and then sailed home. <laughs> this was what he decided to do. Like those people in marathons who hop in a car for half the race and then just join for the last 100 meters. Literally, except this is a, this is a marathon which takes, uh, it's going to take a minimum of nearly a year. Uh, and, and the event at this stage in 1968 was something close to like the first climbing of Everest. The world was watching for these people. It was a huge media event. It was a huge, huge scene. So he, he, when he started off this idea, you know, just sail around in this empty ocean and pretend that I'm making my way around the world. I mean, it obviously made sense to him at some point. That seemed like the, the less shameful uh, outcome. But as time passed and he, and he you know, his, the gap between his fictional position and his real position expanded and people were saying, oh, you're doing really well. His radio broke uh, and he was kind of sailing around completely unable to communicate with the outside world for a while. Then he managed to get it working to the point where he could use Morse code. So he was then communicating and and he was hearing back from England things like, oh, people here are incredibly excited. We can't believe how fast you're doing this. It's unbelievable. Your speed, your speed is incredible. Your style is tenacious. All the, you know, and we've there's a huge welcome for you when you get here because it looks like you're going to win. Uh, everyone will be here. You know, the Queen, <laughs> like uh, a huge armada will steam down the channel to welcome you home. And he's sitting there thinking, oh, no, my falsified logbook is going to be pretty obvious. Like if he, he was kind of thinking, if I come in in a trailing position, no one will really care, but I'm going to be the winner. This is a disaster. And he started to go crazy. And he, wrote, he started to write and write sort of, you know, existential philosophy. He had a lot of time to think about this sort of stuff. And... Eventually, after writing, you know, 25,000 words on, you know, the soul of man, he wrote a suicide note and jumped off his boat. And, well, they found the boat much later. You know, they found the boat drifting around by itself, and people then figured out what had, ha what had happened with Donald Crowhurst. It was just incredible. I mean, you know, the, the sort of a, almost an experiment in the limits of, of what people can do. One, one guy just decides to completely reject all the trappings of civilization, all the obligations that he has to society. One guy feels completely entrapped by them to the point where he can't he can't just hold up his he would rather go in the sea than than sort of hold his hands up and say what's happened at the end of this. And and then in the middle of the world the, the slow and steady English guy, Robin Knox Johnston, comes through to land a five thousand pound prize. Right, Gregor McGuckin joins us now to talk about that Golden Globe race. I guess the obvious question is, why are you doing this? Hmm. Good question. Um, well, I've always wanted to, I've always liked adventure and I've always wanted to kind of sail and sail around the world and I've always kind of admired that, like even the, the old stories of the, the tall ships and the clipper ships going around the world and everything. I think I've always seen the, the, the attraction to that for some reason or other. And then... Um, you must know what the, you must have some better notion of what the reason is. Um... I think it's just it's just the challenge and the adventure and tired. I don't know. Do you are you a very antisocial person? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Well, well that's I mean, going to be that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. Well, I, I imagine the isolation. I imagine it's almost impossible because because put put this in perspective. I mean, uh, you know, what's the possible range of time that you could be at sea here? Probably the guts of nine months, anyway. Nine months and nine uh, months. okay. 
And the thing about this race is that there are restrictions on the equipment that you can use. Yes, yeah, that's right. So I, I guess they're trying to have equipment which is similar to that available in 1968 when they did the first when they did the race first time around. So you have to use, you can't use more advanced stuff than that. So what? No. So what are the things that you aren't allowed to use that would be considered? Oh, obviously you'll have that. Uh, and what what kind of equipment do you have for this? So we're not allowed to use GPS for a start. So we'll be going back to sort of the compasses and sextants. And navigating by the, the the sun, the stars, and the moon, and and that, um, our main communication will be uh, through radios, which are still used to today, and they're a lot more reliable than they were back then. So, you know, theoretically, we can communicate with anyone any anywhere in the world as long as they've got a radio at the other end. Um, the limits are, um, you know, we've, we've we're not allowed to use like any computers or anything like that. Um, no GPS, obviously, uh, no satellite communication. Um, and that being said, we do have, there is all that stuff on board in a sealed box. So if an emergency arises, we can access everything. And, you can uh, use the phone. Yeah. But that yeah. blows up the, the race. You, you're yeah. Out of, it disqualifies you. Yeah, you're disqualified from that race then. Yeah. So. Um, but what's the longest you've ever been at sea for? Uh, about just under a month. Just under a month? Yeah. So, to, so how are you going to psychologically prepare for this? This is crazy. Like, I yeah. mean, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not yeah. dismissing this idea as, as totally insane, but it is incredibly difficult. Yeah, it is. And to be honest, there's, there's not a whole lot you can do to prepare for that, that sort of solitude. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, it's just about keeping your mind busy. Like the one thing with a boat, there's never, you're never really bored. There's always something to do. There's always something to fix or... You, you, it, it, you're never really just sitting there doing nothing um, and you know the, with the, the technology on board you know the radios and everything the reliability of them I will be able to talk to the other competitors and um, back home occasionally and, and stuff like that so it's not it's not it's not to the same degree quite as mad as the first one because for, for starting now they know it's possible to do it so mm. um, but yeah I suppose the only thing you can really compare it to nowadays is sort of so- People in solitary confinement. Yeah, <laughs> so. and which which is not a good thing no, usually no. for those people. Although you know, I suppose that, as you said, you are at least doing so. So, what exactly are you doing? You know, hour to hour on a boat. Like, what do you have to be? What do you have to be staying on top of all the time in order to? You, you know what I mean? I, you're obviously not just sitting there. No, no. So, what are you doing? Well, you're constantly making sure you're in the right place, going the right direction, making sure you know where you are. Um, just ch- changing the sails to the, the the weather conditions that are there. Um, boats being boats, there's always something broken to be fixed. So you're kind of doing that a lot. Yeah. There will be downtime as well, so I've got to manage that. So there'll be sort of a lot of books brought. And What's the preparation for sleep deprivation? Um, the preparation for that is, it kind of depends where you are. So at the start of the race, it starts in be either Falmouth or Plymouth. And so the first bit of it will be really busy with the English Channel and the shipping there. So you generally will probably only get about 20 minutes to half an hour sleep at a time. But then once you get further out... Um, you you know, say 20 minutes at a time, so that's over how many hours? Oh, constantly. Constantly, so... and then So you'd be awake for how many hours and then 20 minutes sleep? Oh, um, well, it'd be... It depends on what needs to be done. Like during the night and stuff, or if there's not much to do, you'd be, you know, you get up, have a quick look around, make sure there's nothing there, make sure everything's right, and then go back to sleep. So it could be a matter of a minute... Or, you know, if you've something to change. But the longest you'll sleep for is 20 minutes. Yeah, for the first bit. But then once you get a bit further out, you could get, you know, there's less traffic around, so there's less things to hit. So you can get away with maybe a bit longer. And do you, do you study what that does to the brain, to your decision making? Uh, yeah, I've been reading a good bit about that. And, um, yeah, you've, got, you've kind of got to have a, you know, 
uh, a plan in place for that and you know that comes down to the training as well you just it's just repetition and repetition so you just put yourself through as many scenarios as possible and um, you know, if you do something 10 times, you know, you can do it. But if you do something 100 times, 150 times, it's kind of muscle memory. You don't even need to think about it. And that's a big part of the training. It's about getting those reactions into everything you do. So, you know, if you need to change sales, change your course, you know, fix things and that kind of thing. It's just getting that um, muscle memory, I suppose, in place. It strikes me that there's so much of the unknown. You don't know how solitude is really going to affect you. Yeah. You don't know how sleep de- deprivation is going to affect you. You don't know what weather... Well, you do know kind of what weather's going to be. You know it's going to be bad at certain times. What, yeah. what, what is the it's weather actually going to be like? Sorry, because uh, the, the root of it, if people don't know, so basically you start off with English Channel and you go down via the southern tip of Africa and then you kind of continue, or at least the, the first race, this is how they went, you kind of continue at a very southerly latitude, south of Australia... South of um, South America and then yep. back up through the Atlantic, so it's yep. the same route. Yeah, is, is that not very rough seas? Kind of very uh, tricky. Yeah, we'll kind of get pretty much everything thrown at us. So obviously, we'd be going across the equator both ways, so twice, and we're getting sort of quite hot weather then, and then down to the Southern Ocean, which is kind of notorious for being stormy. And given the length of time we'll be down there as well, we'll be getting sort of some kind of autumn and springtime um, storms as well. So it's all in the preparation. Um, I mean, it's it's a lot different to what it was in the original race. Like a lot of people have done this now. There's a lot written about it. There's a lot of experience to be drawn from. So, I mean, you can never be, you can never be 100% about everything, but you can be as close as you, as close as you can be. Do you fear the physical world or your internal mental world more? Oh, my mental world. <laughs> Definitely. I think, uh, I think with the with the boats that are allowed in the race, they're all, you know, they're kind of older style boats and they're all very, very seaworthy, very, very, very strongly built. Um, and, you know, you, you can prepare them very well. Obviously, you can, can't prepare them for everything, but you can make them, you can make them really tough. The toughest thing is going to be um, just keeping myself, well, entertained for a start and um, just keep keeping my interest in it because it's, you know, it's, it's very easy to be able to, if you're getting fed up with it, just to turn towards land and pull out at any one point. So the trick is to try and manage that so you don't want to do that. So the possibility of, say, a 60-mile-per-hour wind, 20, 30-foot waves coming at you in the darkness, however, thousands of kilometres from land, that aspect of it doesn't scare you? Um, well, it, it always makes you nervous, but you can... I mean, I've been in conditions like that before, so you can. You, I, it's not completely unknown to me. Um, I mean, yeah, you're still, you know, you you won't sleep well. You'll always be kind of lying there and with your eyes kind of half closed, just listening and trying to feel everything. Um, yeah, it's just a, you just got to deal with it, really. Are you a religious person? No, not really. (laughs) No. Maybe I will be by the end of it. (laughs) I see that, that I I was looking at the other part, like there's 25 people, I think, who have, who have expressed an interest in yeah. Uh, and, and you've all kind of paid a deposit, and you're yeah. you know you're on track to be in the race. But the average age of of the pilots is forty eight. Yeah, you're a good bit younger than that. Yeah, I'm not the youngest though. There's about there's three or four competitors. What age? What age? You? I'm thirty now. Yeah. So there's three or four. Um, there's three guys I think, and one girl who's twenty twenty six or twenty seven now. So they'd be the youngest. Mm. And then there's a few kind of um, in, in mid, mid, more middle aged, and then there's a couple of older older guys as why well. Why do they Why do they trend a little bit older? Um. I think a funny thing with sort of solo sailing is it seems to attract older people a bit more. I think, I think that a lot of that comes down to 
sort of mental capacity and kind of you're kind of used to yourself a bit more and you can used to tired of the world yeah yeah well maybe i don't know but <laughs> uh, what did your family say when you tell them you, you want to do this race well they've known for a while that um you know I've, I've been into kind of sailing offshore and i've been into i've wanted to do this kind of thing and i think it's one of these things i never really expected it to come up and then they're a bit taken aback but they've been very supportive yeah yeah and they think you know fair, fair play kind of thing go for it if you want to do it how do you finance it um, I'm looking for sponsorship, so I've put a, I've put a good chunk of my own money into it at the moment, and I'm kind of working working full full time on the whole thing at the moment, trying to you know working with companies and trying to see who wants to basically sponsor me to do it. And and do you take do you take uh, donations from individuals who who'd like to see you return alive one day? Yeah, yeah. If they want to, that'd be very welcome. <laughs> well, how do they do that? Um, I have a, a a GoFundMe, a sort of crowdfunding page. It's just been set up about a week ago, I think. Um, so it's on. It's, I have a website as well where anybody can uh, read more about the race and my campaign and everything like that. Which it's, is? It's uh, www.gregormcguckin.com. Yeah. And then I have a link to um, the GoFundMe page in there and I have a bit more information if anybody wants to sponsor you know, from a business or something like that. And yeah. We can work with them. Yeah. Well, if anyone uh, has been listening to this and feels like they want to help Gregor out in his insane ambition to <laughs> <laughs> circle the world only company in a, in a small boat, uh, then yeah, check out uh, gregormcgogan.com. Gregor, thanks a million for coming in. Cool, and thanks for having me. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck <laughs> happened? No, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city... Knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sports important. Murph, how are your celestial navigation skills? Um, well, Simon, I'm gonna I'm gonna level with you now. Um, I haven't actually spent a massive amount of time on boats, ships, you know. Basically, any you know uh, uh, seafaring vessel, but I did I did spend one extended period of time. Uh, I was uh, touring around the Galapagos Islands on a small boat uh, for I think seven days. On one of the seven days, uh, my wife and I decided to stay up late and watch the sunrise. Okay. Now there some drink unfortunately had been taken, and uh, we waited. And waited for uh, the sunrise. Uh, we did not see, you know, the 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 crest of the sun coming up over the horizon. However, we did notice that there was a general, you know, the the world had been lit in some way by some other force. Until we turned our backs around half an hour after the sunrise was supposed to have happened, and realised that we were looking in the were looking entirely west. wrong direction. Yes, yeah. 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 Um, Wow. And so, as a result, I've never really felt that directions were my thing. You know that that if if Google Maps isn't telling me where to go, then it's probably best just yeah. you know just just take a moment, try and read a map or something. But do under no circumstances take take it upon myself to try and figure it out via the medium of as you say, Simon. You didn't Celestial, no, just uh, look navigation. over your shoulder once or twice. See, just that's the thing, Simon. That's the thing. You would have thought that. You know, if I'd been switched on, you know, if I'd if I'd really felt that this was an important thing for me, I would have been checking, you know, at 
my blind spot, which my blind spot being, you know, 270 degrees of my line of vision. I should have been doing that. That's what I should have been doing, Simon. You'd seen the sun set. Um, several hours earlier and it'll be back it'll pop straight back up in that position well where did you last see it that's the question I asked Ked where did I last see it went into the sea just over there so should be should should be a log presently Ken Early what's coming up in the football show that's yeah they have asked for that really well you can laugh I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me what are you doing down here, you yawning man? Well, we talked uh, a little bit about tomorrow's game in the Premier League, which maybe it's going to decide to an extent how how interesting the rest of the season is. Um, could almost be a title decider in January between Tottenham and Chelsea. Uh, we also spoke a little bit, well, about what we were talking about earlier with the. Um, Guardiola's irritable uh, attitude with Miguel Delaney and a couple of other things besides. Okay, great stuff, Ken. That's all from us for now. Get in touch on Twitter at SecondCaptains or by email at editor at SecondCaptains.com. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thank Mark. Thanks, Ken. Thank Thanks, you, Simon. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. And see you all on Thursday. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.